to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I am your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. It has infected all illicit drugs, from cocaine to meth, counterfeit pills, and even marijuana. If you are around someone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. If you need a prescription for naloxone, you should have one, no questions asked. That is why I am offering a free prescription to anyone who needs one. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. And if you like the show, do me a favor. Give us a five-star review and subscribe. Your stars are very much appreciated and go a long way in supporting the program. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website, isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org to follow the science on marijuana. Hello again, High Truth listeners. It's always a pleasure to get together for another trending episode. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev. Trending drug use is important in interdiction and reducing supply, but also to keep up with treatment modalities. Whenever there's a new disease like uh, monkeypox, I need to learn how to recognize the disease and treat it. And by the way, I've treated monkeypox patients now. It's not difficult. The pox kind of looks like chickenpox. But new drug trends are also important to track. I need to learn what symptoms to look for and how to treat that poisoning. And that's why I look to the medical examiner and law enforcement to learn what's out there. That makes me a better doctor. There are national sources for drug surveillance and trends that we learn about in this episode. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hi, Dr. Lev. Thank you for having me on. For the listeners, I am Thomas Polveroni, an intern physician who has been very fortunate to work some very busy shifts with our host. Thank you for putting together this podcast and for your continued teaching about trigger point injections. It was very interesting to see a patient's sciatica symptoms instantly resolved after such a simple intervention. One thing I've noticed in the ED is the ubiquitous use of urine drug screening for patients presenting with mental health symptoms or in an altered mental state. Could you speak about whether there are other substances we should keep in mind that may not be covered by these tests but could contribute to the clinical scenario? Thank you, Dr. Polveroni, for your kind words and great question. I love doing trigger point injections. Uh, They work like magic. Pain goes from 10 to 1 instantly when it does work. And to answer your question, by the way, I have an expert in drug screening, Dr. Eric Wish. Dr. Wish received his PhD in psychology from Washington University and postdoctorate fellowship in psychiatric epidemiology. He is a national expert on drug trends, and he supervised the development of the Drug Use Forecasting Program in 2013. He developed the Community Drug Early Warning System, and the following year, he established the national drug warning system called NDUS, N-D-E-W-S. 
He is now the director of the Center for Substance Use Research at CSER at the University of Maryland. You can find Dr. Eric Wish's bio on the High Truth show notes. Dr. Wish, welcome to High Truths. Oh, thank you. It's so nice to be with you this morning. I know. I've been looking forward to this interview. You and I have worked together on interesting projects that I want to share with our audience, but I want them to get to know you first. So tell us, how did you choose a career that ended up looking into drug trends? Well, I got into the drug area because I was at Washington University in St. Louis studying in the psychology doctoral program. And um, I heard there was an NIMH drugs and addictions traineeship and you know, money's gonna attract you, I guess. So I needed funding, so I went there. And while I was there, um, I basically um, had to do an internship. So everyone said to me, you've got to go and see this person named Lee, Dr. Lee N. Robbins in the Department of Psychiatry. So I went, I said, yeah, I'll go see him. Well, it turns out it was not a him. Dr. Lee Robbins um, basically trained me in research and I worked with her on the Vietnam veteran follow-up study and um, I got my doctorate, then did a short night of postdoc with her and then um, moved to Washington. And um, while I was in the, the, um, um, the Vietnam, vet, Vietnam veteran study, I met the who's who of the drug field, including Dr. Robert DuPont and G Dr. Jerry Jaffe and the late David Nurko, all of these greats in the drug field. And um, I came to um, Washington and I worked with a firm, uh, a nonprofit research firm where I inherited a study to look at drug test results from the DC pretrial testing program and um, relate that to uh, criminal justice information, case information. And the person who basically funded that project, by the way, was Dr. Robert DuPont. I say everything I do is based on, on his great ideas. He, I just he's take awesome. His, Shout yeah, out to yeah. to Bob. Yep, I take his ideas. He was first director of NIDA, as you know. Anyway, while I was there, um, I was basically linking the urine test results from um, people who had been arrested and tested with their criminal histories, and did some reports. And then I I moved to New York and sort of replicated what we did. DC has been testing people for drugs um, since around, I, actually Bob DuPont started it. I think it was April 1st, 1970, and they tested everyone until recently, everyone who's arrested and charged with a criminal offense. So I went there and um, started a research program. I was funded by National Institute of Justice to basically collect urines. I, I, we, went, we went into Manhattan Central Booking and collected urines from arrestees. And we created a, 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 we showed that it was possible to do that. And then I, in 1986 to 1990, I was a visiting fellow at NIJ, setting up what was called the Drug Use Forecasting Program, was renamed the ADAM Program. So um, the RST Drug Abuse Monitoring Program. And the idea was that if you um, could collect urine specimens from people who are being arrested, and who are high risk for using drugs back then, and then sort of do that every quarter and, and, ch and chart that, that's C-H-A-R-T with the Boston accent. You could chart it and you could track drug trends. So I was, we did it in, in Manhattan and they used to say, once you do it in New York, you can do it anywhere. They brought me down as a visiting fellow and we established those programs. And um, when I left that, that um, 
project. I know this is a long answer, but I hope it's okay, okay for you. When I went, when I um, left that, that project uh, at NIJ, and it lasted for about 15 years, um, and it was, all, it was international, it was in about 25 booking facilities around the country. Um, I basically took over a new center at the University of Maryland called the Center for Substance Abuse Research or CESAR. And while I was there, um, I found out that um, I would visit um, jails professionally and they would all say, Dr. Wish, look at our urine testing equipment. And they would show me that we went to one local jail and they, they said, look at it. And I said, that's great. And then I said, what are you testing for? And it turns out they were testing for the drugs of the old epidemics, all right? And I said, can you test for this and this and this? And they said, no, we have a contract with the state and this is all we can do. So then of course I said, can I have some? What do you do with these when you're done? We throw them out after 30 days if they're positive. Otherwise we, 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 we throw them out quickly if they're negative. I started collecting urines in, in Maryland from the testing program. And then we had what, the idea- What year was that? Oh, I think it was about 2005, 05. So and, fast forward 15 years, we still have the same problem of testing the wrong things. <laughs> we, we still do. So basically I enlarged that program and I enlarged that program and then um, showed that instead of going in and sending researchers in to collect urines, why not collect urines that are already collected by testing, operating testing programs and then just test them for drugs. So we did that. And um, then ONDCP, the Office of National Drug Control Policy, got interested in it, and they funded us to go to different uh, places um, other than criminal justice, some hospitals and whatever. So we went to treatment programs, and we, sort, we basically found that basically around the country, people don't test for the drugs that are out there. They, they, have, a, they have a contract, and they just test for what's, what's what um, what they have contracts for. So then we move from that into now something called the Emergency Department Drug Surveillance Program, which we are now launching. Um, and that's how we met you through ONDCP because you had been there and you helped to set up the program um, in, in California or in your hospital. And we, we um, have it in Maryland and we have it in five hospitals outside of Maryland. I just want to share with your, your viewers that when we first got the results in our pilot study from the Baltimore hospitals, you know, Baltimore is known for having a big heroin problem there. We looked at the opiate screen results and they were like on a 45 degree angle coming down during what was an opioid epidemic. So what was this? You know, so we looked into it and we thought, well, gee, maybe they're using fentanyl. The opiate screen that everyone is using across the country does not pick up fentanyl. So one of the doctors, Dr. Zach Desmond, basically um, did a dipstick test. He bought his own dipsticks for fentanyl, tested some specimens before he sent them to the lab and then compared the results. And those results basically showed that the opiate screen that the hospitals were missing a large percentage of people who are testing positive for fentanyl. And basically because of that research, which was published in MMWR and in another medical journal, um, it, the two hospitals in Baltimore started testing for fentanyl. And, and, you know, it's so rare that you do social science research and you really affect policy and this, and they did. And then we included those hospitals in the ED study. And what we found was since they started testing for fentanyl, that 
85 to 95% of the people coming in, the overdose people coming in and being tested, test positive for fentanyl. And the next highest drug is cocaine and then 40%. So you're talking, they were missing the drug that with most people were testing positive. So, so um, with that, ONDC expanded us. We started to, to look for hospitals outside, um, outside Maryland, and we're doing that. And now this year, we're expanding to um, about 17 hospitals. We're working with the group HCA Healthcare, and they, they're an umbrella organization of about 182 hospitals, and they're helping us to get the approvals, and we're in the process of collecting that information now. And um, the results from the program are just amazing to us because first of all, you find that just about no hospitals testing for positive testing for fentanyl. I know you're in California in your hospital, you can request it, you know, special, special tests, but the routine panel doesn't include that. And it's kind of amazing to me that in a country where we know that the people are dying from fentanyl every day, that the hospitals aren't testing for it. And you know what they say, and I'm sure you can, you can talk about this too. Um, a lot of times the, the AED physicians will say, well, we don't test for everything and we don't care because we test, we test for the symptoms. We have to treat the symptoms, they say. And the point is, if you, know, if you do the testing, now you have information so you can tell your patients, you know, you were using fentanyl. Our fentanyl is very available out here in this community, and you, it's for, so you can have a, uh, it's great public health information, and it's sort of like, you know, now that we have COVID and you say you have to test in order to track the trends, well, you would want to test for fentanyl just so we can track the trends and track the outbreaks. So yeah. anyway, sorry, that was a quick answer, but go ahead. No, that's, 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 very, that's all very important, and you said so many things that I, I'll, want to comment about i want to uh, uh, let our viewers know now 2022 people know okay of course we know we have a fentanyl epidemic but but your study in 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 baltimore um and in getting those hospitals there to start testing for fentanyl that was several years ago you were on top of the trend because of of your study in 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 surveillance in in drug use right um and so what we've done with that, and I'm so honored that we got to be part of your study um, also, is um, move that to, to action. Just like you said, you've done studies uh, and now to policy. And we did that in California. And I don't know if you know, but from the, those studies, we um, I called all the labs uh, in San Diego County, 24 hospitals, um, they were all working very hard on COVID, and I said, you need to work on fentanyl, too. Maybe at that time, COVID was number one, but fentanyl number two. Um, and within 10 months, the majority of hospitals in, in San Diego County were testing for fentanyl, and we wrote a bill, and it's going through um, California legislature with unanimous support, SB 864, fentanyl uh, testing, Tyler's Law, and we expect this to pass very soon, August or September, to be signed by the governor. And every hospital in California will be including fentanyl anytime they do the drug test. So that's that's um, I'm excited about that. And and you know that originates with this type of drug surveillance that you're doing clinically. It's, it's so important. Um, the, the other thing I would say when you talk to doctors and they say, oh, we don't need testing. 
I tell ER doctors, and I'm one of them, I said, you're right. You don't need um, to test. When you have someone, I'll tell you an interesting story. I don't know if it belongs in this podcast, but I just worked last night. Um, um, at 11 o'clock at night, I was done with my shift. I closed my computer. I got my bag in my hand. I'm out to the door. And, and the nurse comes, grabs me um, because my patient stopped breathing. What do you mean my patient stopped breathing? I, I admitted her with a hip fracture. I had her all tucked away to be admitted, the orthopedic surgery in the morning, everything all done. She stopped breathing. I gave her one a dilated. I immediately ran, gave her naloxone, uh, reversed it. So you do I need to know? I don't need the drug screen to know what to do, but I do need it. The difference is being a good doctor, which I just did, being between that and being a great doctor in knowing how to make sure that doesn't happen again and educate the patient, right? So there's treating the acute condition like I did last night versus, okay, now I got to think why would only one dilated do that or why did that person overdose? How do I convince them to change? All that has, you know, helps, data helps with that. So that's why I tell ER doctors when they say, oh, I don't need a, a test. It's like, yeah, we don't need a COVID test either. We don't need half the tests that we do in order to treat people. But that added data point sometimes makes a difference between a good doctor and a great doctor. Well, I, I just, I'm so excited to learn all of the th changes that you've created in your county, you know, um, and I would ask that you put that in writing and tell ONDCP, they always, you know, they always need to know why this project is important and, and we need that information to be communicated to them. So thank you so much. It takes, I, throughout my career, it's like, you've got to get, you've got to connect with visionary people like yourself who actually will run with the stuff and who will, who will basically go further, go beyond the, what's, what's generally known. I think it's great. I wanted to add one other contextual thing is that one of the studies we did in in Maryland not a few years ago um, was there was synthetic um, synthetic cannabinoid outbreak and everyone knew it and it was in the press so we asked two of the hospitals to send us urines to test from people that they believe and had, synthetic cannabinoids just for our audience that's like spice and k2 right. um, it's it's not really it says synthetic marijuana but really it's made in a lab it's not real marijuana yeah i tend not to use synthetic marijuana because people then think oh it's marijuana and that's legal you know how could it be bad you know that's true that's and that's so true. we basically tested the specimens from physicians who basically thought for the most part these people had taken a synthetic cannabinoid and what we found we found we sent them to the independent laboratory only 20 percent tested positive for synthetic cannabinoids um, it was uh, uh, fentanyl and, and cocaine in Baltimore, and it was PCP in, um, in Prince George's County, Maryland, which has been known for having a PCP problem. So basically what I wanted to just tell you listeners is a lot of the data systems we have basically are, are using clinical records. In other words, what the patient or an observer or the doctor thinks the person had taken and not necessarily based on testing, but people don't know what they took. You know, sometimes when we tested specimens, we, they were tested positive for 15, 16 different substances. So you need to do the testing. And that's why this EDS project that we're doing is so important because it's focused on what, what, um, what people over time, what, what the trends and what they're testing positive for, 
But because we know that the hospitals only test for a few drugs, we get we sample specimens de-identified and we send them to a lab and test them for 500 drugs. So every hospital can then get a report saying, here's what was found in the specimens that tested positive for anything in your panel versus those that tested totally negative. And right, and that, that's so important because that does make me a better doctor because I could just, you know, kind of treat people's symptoms. But if I know what's going on in the community, then, you know, I, I can focus and do better. And, you know, since I've increased testing and I probably test a little more than, than maybe other doctors, I use that information with patients and patients are very interested. Um, some aren't, yeah. um, but but some are like, oh, I, you know, I had a guy said, no, it was just marijuana. I swear it was just marijuana. It's like, you have no marijuana in your system, but you have fentanyl in your system. Right. Um, and you could see them, that patient pause and, and, and wonder, that's not what they expected. No, no, we've done studies where, other studies where people are, are shown a test result and asked, asked them whether they use the drug. And they said, the dealer must have put that in. I didn't know it, you know? So that's, that's the way it is now. And, and that's why we say with the studies we did over time, we were able to actually document the different synthetic cannabinoid metabolites that, that are out there. That, you know, we were able to go on the media and tell people that they were playing Russian roulette when they used drugs they thought were like synthetic cannabinoids because, because it, the people who make this are continually changing the molecules so that they're legal. Because, right. you know, yeah. So anyway, it's... It's, it's, it's very it's important good. because drugs keep changing minute to minute. And if we don't keep up with that, it's not just for the data. For me, I mean, data, you know, some people like data. I want to know what to do <laughs> when the patients come to the emergency department so I can act, right? right? So I think that makes a clinical difference um, right. to how we improve treatment of patients. Right. Well, as an epidemiologist, you know, I mean, my focus is on can I track the trends, but the information then gets down to you to help you with your patients. I think it's it's absolutely critical. I wanted to tell you something else that just happened. Um, the state of Maryland has just given us um, a grant, basically a cooperative agreement um, to create the first statewide EDS project. So we're gonna create, we're gonna create the EDS program in 20 hospitals in so Maryland. So tell us again, EDS stands for Emergency, Emergency Department Emergency. Drug right. Surveillance. Yeah, we're gonna put it in 20 hospitals and in the 18 that don't test for fentanyl, we're going to do the dipstick test. They're gonna send us a, a small sample of specimens, about 50, and we're gonna test them for fentanyl. Well, actually, actually we're gonna do it there. We're going to do the dipstick test before the lab is done with the specimens, basically. Well, on one hand, I'm jealous because you got all your state to be involved in your study and you test for 500 different drugs, not just fentanyl. Right. On the other hand, I'm disappointed because they should simply do what we do in California is they should all be testing for fentanyl. That shouldn't be an extra thing. If you're checking for PCP, why the heck would you not be checking for fentanyl? And it, do, it, it, takes, it costs 75 cents and... If the state of Maryland, if any hospital wants to learn how to do it, I have a toolkit. I can help them figure out how to buy the reagent. Um, uh, anyway. Well, so I think now we're going to find out, you know, by doing, taking the small sample specimens, we'll find out where there probably is fentanyl throughout the state of Maryland because it's a very diverse state. And then the hospitals that um, are missing it 
can decide to adopt the fentanyl testing. And that's when we'll bring you in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, even rural hospitals wanted to get an exemption in our law for not to not test for fentanyl. And our legislator actually had it right, saying, but people are dying in rural areas. Yeah. You know, maybe the test will cost a dollar in your hospital instead of 75 cents in a busy hospital because there's bulk purchasing. But that's still, you know, that's, you know, still so important. So Dr. Thomas uh, Polveroni, he's an intern who I work with in the yeah. emergency department, very enthusiastic. And he noticed that we order lots of urine drug screens on patients with mental health and issues and altered mentation. And he wonders if there are other drugs that we should keep in mind that do not show up on our routine drug screens that couldn't contribute to clinical scenarios. You mentioned um, one, the synthetic cannabinoids. We do fentanyl now. We, when we first started the project, we, we did it only on occasion. Now we do it all the time. Um, but are there other drugs? You're, you're testing these um, urine samples from on, on hundreds uh, of things. What else are you finding? Oh, well, you get a lot of the prescription drugs too, but we don't, we can't tell easily if it's been prescribed or used, you know, in under physician supervision. But one of the, one of the things that you would think people would be testing for that not everyone is testing for is marijuana. You know, it's like, we find, we, we, we find a substantial minority of people who, when we test them for 500 drugs, they only test positive for marijuana. It raises questions in my mind. And I know there's been some research published recently that maybe there's some issues around use of marijuana in terms of psychoactive issues, in terms of medical issues. And um, I find, uh, for the most part, people aren't interested. I don't know what the reason is. I know they don't want to test for nicotine because they, they, they say, oh, everyone's using. But when you have a huge expansion of marijuana use, like what we're having in this country, uh, maybe we should at least do some research to see, to ask these patients who test positive for marijuana, how they think maybe it affected them, especially if all they test positive for is marijuana. So um, I'm not sure that's the drug you wanted to talk about, but that's one that, that really well, is. Let's, uh, let's talk about that, because that's very important. I noticed when you did the, the five hospital study, uh, that our hospital was part of, um, even Colorado, you know, one of the first to legalize marijuana, they removed THC from their drug screen. So they got all these other drugs and they, they, they consciously took that out. So when you look at their drug trends, it looks like, oh, well, they don't have a marijuana problem. While in my hospital that does test for marijuana, 50% of all drugs were positive for THC. And we know that THC is becoming much more potent. Um, back in the Vietnam era, when you started um, your your career, that drug was 3% THC. Now you go to dispensaries, um, you could buy 98% THC. People on that behave more like they're on meth. It's not a mellow drug anymore. It's uh, And... I actually think it's malpractice if because they're missing, those hospitals are missing cannabis-induced psychosis, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, and, and things that are evident with, with that, that data. Um, I would call them on it. I would call them on it, and they shouldn't yeah. be part of your study if they're not, um, yeah. if they're consciously um, making a political decision 
instead of, of a science decision with their drug testing. Well, in our in our where we in our study where we collected urines, 150 urines, 100 hospital positive and 50 hospital negative for their screen. Uh, we found, I think the remember was around 30 to 40% of them of each group tested positive for marijuana. So when, when, you, um, when you talked with them, did they give you any rationale for why they, they took it off their panel? Um, the Colorado ones, is, it, it was a political decision. They, yeah. you know, they, they, they don't want, you know, to, you know, people, you know, to, they, I think they want to show that's not a problem if you don't measure it. Then it right. can't be a problem, right? right? That's right. Remember, that's talk with COVID. You don't measure it, you don't have a problem there. You have less of a problem, right? Right. But yeah. but they're they're doing a disservice to to their patients. I talked to um, a mom whose son went to uh, that same Colorado emergency department with a psychotic break, um, uh, and got admitted, got stabilized, and then left and um, very sadly committed suicide. But they'll miss the diagnosis of cannabis-induced psychosis, um, which is, which is um, you know, I, I, I think that that's a type of malpractice for, 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 you know, and that's letting politicians practice medicine, which I don't think is right also. Yeah, well, we, we, we haven't been able to do this yet, but um, we do have the information in our database on, on diagnostic uh, diagnoses. So we could relate, look at that among the marijuana positive people, see if they, they have anything like those illnesses that you just mentioned. Yeah. You know? um, there are other things, you, bath salts, xylazines, fentanyl analogs, synthetic benzodiazepines. There's a whole bunch of stuff that, that you test for that we can't do in the hospital that could be affecting clinical scenarios. You know what we find a lot of that we had to explain it gabapentin keeps showing up and there have been some issues around that but uh, i don't know why there's so much gabapentin showing up in these people that's one yeah. of the yeah. gabapentin showed up um high in mortality data when i researched patients who died from medications yeah. uh, gabapentin was was up there um and it um it was harder to tell if it's prescribed because it's not a scheduled drug so I was able to compare all scheduled drugs, um, yeah. like the oxycodones and the benzodiazepines. But since gabapentin is not scheduled, I could not tell if it was prescribed or not because it is a commonly prescribed medication. Yeah, well, it, it, we have been finding it for years, so we don't know what's, what's behind that. Uh, the, other, one of the, the other interesting things that we found is when you look across hospitals, not only do their panels just differ a lot, the drugs they're testing for, but the cutoff levels they use are not, are not standard. It's, it's like we, we really need a standardized set of drugs and cutoff levels that are used um, um, across the country. So that if we want to be able to track things, otherwise we're comparing apples and oranges. And lots of times, you know, lots of times we find a lot more drugs, even of the drugs that the hospital tests for, we find a lot more people positive for it because our, our, our lab is using much more sensitive tests. So yeah, you did that at our hospital, for example. Um, yeah. We, uh, very sadly, you found out for us that we really, I call it, we're the capital of methamphetamine. <laughs> 76% of all the drug screens that we did were positive for methamphetamines. And then you pointed out the cutoff level because 
even our negatives, you found that m half of our negatives were actually positive, but we, our cutoff was, was um, so high that we yeah. were missing it. Yeah. So, you know, if we, I really think we need a national system of doing this, at least of, of hospitals, uh, the, the way they test so that we can combine the data and can actually track the emergence of these drugs around the country, you know, the, the ups and downs of them. Um, because um, it's kind of crazy that we don't do it. It's really unfortunate that we don't do it. Yeah. And again, that, that does that does make a, a clinical difference, or at least to know. I mean, it's hard to standardize things amongst hospital. I don't know if we could ever do that. But for me to know um, that if I have a patient who's acting strange, and even if my talk screen is negative, my cutoff is high, and that's why I'm missing it. So I, just knowing that is powerful. Um, and the other thing we haven't talked about that I think is critical is it's, you know, I've, as I say, I've been involved in this type of research since the 70s. And it's like, we love to villainize a drug. We blame it on the drug and we focus it on the one drug every time. Remember the crack cocaine, it was heroin, it was crack cocaine. And what we find when we do this testing is we rarely find something like fentanyl. You're not gonna find that being the only drug. Now, again, these are people coming into the hospital, emergency department, so they're having problems. But all I'm saying is there are multiple drugs that are found and, and, and um, we should be looking at that and not just focusing on the one drug that people tend to use. I oftentimes say it's the person, not the drug. In other words, um, it's likely that there are some people who have a disposition for using, for using these drugs and we need to be able to, to, to figure out who they are and to work with them because you don't wanna just treat one drug or focus all the attention and, and resources on one drug. Yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, fentanyl is killing people disproportionately, so we probably do need to focus on that. But I absolutely agree with you. And, and um, you know, we can't have, you know, when I was at ONDCP, the Office of National Drug Control Policy, uh, part of the White House. Um, there was focus uh, just on opioids. I made a point that we should, you know, spend that money also on methamphetamines. We were creating protocols to taper people from opioids. And I said, you know, that's great, but we also need protocols to taper for benzodiazepines because that's much more difficult. And what happens is we just leave those patients um you know, with no resource, you know, we have to take a collective approach of everything. Um, there are some things related to just the drugs, like treatment, but you're right. When it comes to the human being of why they're using drugs and it's, it's not the drugs and the actual chemicals themselves. It's, it's, it's the person and, and the, the disorder that needs, that needs attention. Yeah. I used, I did um, some research over the years where I took survey results, big surveys, and I looked at, I basically looked at if you tested part, if you not, this is one, this was self-reported information in the surveys, but if you said you would use a particular drug, how many other drugs did you use? And if you lined up the drugs from the very prevalent like drugs, starting like at alcohol and marijuana, and you line them up, looking from them down to the ones with a very rare, that was like heroin, uh, even methamphetamine and PCP, basically the rare drug, it was the rare drugs, the rarer the drug, the more drugs the person had used ever, lifetime. So the, the correlation between the prevalence of drug 
and how many drugs the person had used was like minus 0.95. So in other words, as it went, as you got less and less prevalent, you got more and more drugs that the person had used. Is that clear? So, yeah, that makes sense. Because if yeah. you, you're, you're not going to start with the rear, you know, you're going to start um, right. with with what I do in my personal study of hundreds of patients in the emergency department that I have not published. Right. I ask everybody, um, you know, what's the, how old are you when you first started using drugs and what was the first drug you ever used? And um, almost 100% of people who were using fentanyl started out with marijuana. And sometimes yeah. they even dismiss it. Oh, well, that was just marijuana. It, yeah, but you were 12 years old. That yes, started right. your right. that started your brain into addiction. And that matters clinically because I, I kind of estimate how long they need to be on Suboxone for. It's like they're mm -hmm. not going to be on it for a week if they've been using drugs, including marijuana, since a young age. It's, they're not going to reprogram their brain that fast. Um Right. What yeah. about what about xylazine? Um, my uh, we're seeing that on the West Coast, um, but my counterparts on the East Coast saying they're seeing that a lot with fentanyl, which makes the reversal and treatment um, more resistant of having xylazine with with the, the fentanyl. Are you are you seeing that? I know we're testing for it, but I really don't focus so much on it that I can give you much information on it. But if you get get back to me and we talk afterwards about it. I'll try and look that, look that up. It's the more, um, the more prevalent drugs is, 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 um, what I'm prepared to talk about now. You know? Okay. Yeah. And do you see all the other different drugs like bath salts and, um, new, there's new benzodiazepines out there. Are you, are you finding oh, yeah, those yeah. things as yeah, well? Yeah, we just got an uh, inquiry from FDA and we have to look at the molecular structure right now. Uh, of the benzodiazepines, because we do test for a whole a variety of those. But um, I don't, um, right now we're in the process where we're still trying to expand and collect more data. And I have a very, very limited staff. The The funding for this project is, in, is infinitesimal. So we're a small group, but we're hoping at some point, given that we have all this data collected, that we'll uh, be able to get some resources to be able to have more people look at it. You're asking wonderful questions. Yeah. You're small but mighty. I've met your team. They're amazing. Oh, they're phenomenal. I'm very blessed to have these these colleagues to work with. You um you you started out telling us about this Vietnam veterans uh, drug study that you're involved in. Can you tell us about that? Sometimes we could learn something from from history. Oh boy. Well, that was a classic study because um, and it was Lee Robbins. She was a genius in, in the drug field, and we found. Um, at that time, there was a real, real um, question whether the the vets whom they were, we were known were using heroin, whether or not it would their addiction. We we thought, you know, from media reports and from reports from the field, there was a lot of addiction, but we we didn't know we didn't have really good numbers. So they went to Lee Robbins and they asked her to do a follow up study of all selective of all service men coming back in September seventy one. And she did a phenomenal way of sampling them. And literally, NORC did the surveys. Um, they found 94% of the target population. They interviewed them. This was a year after they returned to the, um, to the states. And they found while there was a lot of addiction, a lot of use and a lot of addiction, um, that I don't remember the numbers offhand, but um, when they came home, they 
basically remitted without even without treatment. All right. So the question was, there was a lot of, uh, of criticism at that time, basically, oh, you didn't study them right, or you didn't study them, you didn't um, wait for them uh, to be home longer, you should have had a longer follow-up period. So basically, uh, we followed them up again uh, three years after they were home and found the same results. And now we know it is actually true that um, they didn't spawn a big heroin addiction problem in the States by the from the Vietnam veterans. It really, really... Um, sort of dissipated and it wasn't because people couldn't get it because they told us that they still, most of them knew where they could get heroin if they wanted it. So it, it, it sort of raised some big issues back then about why, uh, and Lee wrote a lot of articles about it, but why, why did these people who had the symptoms of addiction come home and um, not have, uh, most of them not have serious problems resulting from it? I can tell you, Lee, Lee's, um, she was a sociologist in the psychiatry department, and she, um, she was very well known for what was called back then deviance, you know, behavior problems and whatever. And what we found was that the people in Vietnam who got into trouble with drugs, you could basically find them by their pre-service risky behaviors, school problems, fighting, even some drug use. So it, again, it got back to certain people for some reason um, being more disposed to having the problems with drugs. Um, the other thing is that, um, and not everyone agrees on this, but the idea is you you wouldn't characterize everyone's um, sort of experience with alcohol by just looking at the people who were diagnosed with alcoholism. They may be very different. And but what everything we knew about heroin addiction back then came from studying people basically in treatment, the ones who got in the most trouble in it. Well, as here with the Vietnam veterans study, we were looking at a quasi normal group of people. You could not, you couldn't remember back then, you're probably too young, but back then you couldn't be drafted if you had a criminal record. So that the people who, it was like a, a natural experiment where a quasi normal group of people went to Vietnam to a heroin rich, and rich environment, you could see what happened. And, um, you know, I urge people to go back and, and look at the studies if they want, but um, uh, it, was, it was quite an experience to work on that study and to, and again, you found the poly substance use, you know, it's, it, that stuff hasn't changed at all. Dr. Jerome Jaffe um, that we, you've kind of mentioned, he's also yeah. was one of the nation's first, um, actually he's a very, nation's very first uh, drugs are psychiatrist. He was a wonderful mentor to me um, oh. while I was at ONDCP. Uh, he instituted a policy during that era um, when President Nixon uh, came to him and said, you know, what do we do? We have, we're going to have this problem with heroin. And he came up with the idea to drug test the veterans while at Vietnam before they come home. Yes. And if they were positive, they'd have to wait a week yeah. before they come home. Yeah. yeah. What a great motivator. <laughs> right? It yep. worked. Comes um, back and, to drug testing again. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, it, it yeah. it's a prevention tool. It's a deterrent tool, right? It's It was important. So I thought that was absolutely brilliant. Um, I don't know if it'd, it'd probably maybe controversial today if we did that, but I thought that was, you know, really a brilliant idea. Um, and he also did point out availability. 
Yeah. Um, because supply matters. We have so many people on methamphetamine in San Diego because supply is everywhere. Um, and um, with increased supply, um, there's increased use. And so we, we can't discount the fact that when the veterans came back, um, the supply of heroin was not yeah. um, as great as it was um, when it was in where it was in Vietnam. Yeah. You know, they said, OK, well, I know I can find it, but that's just different than having it everywhere. Sure. Right? Yeah, there's just so many hypotheses out there as to why it happened. All we can say for sure is they had they got they got the symptoms of dependence in Vietnam when they came home. They remitted. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. It didn't matter supply, they- and then the other theory I think that I've heard a lot is they were with family and a social support that right. that is important. And we know that that's definitely important when it comes to drug use. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, Je- uh, Dr. Jaffe was the head of SayAdapt, the president's special action office on drug abuse prevention, which became the forerunner of NIDA. So he stepped down from SayAdapt and Bob DuPont became the first director of NIDA when they formed it. So it was all connected. Yeah, he, yep, yep. They're both brilliant, brilliant men. They are, and and they're um, around today, still vibrant, both these gentlemen. Uh, uh, Dr. DuPont has been on this show on High Truths. Um, and uh, Dr. Jaffe, I've, um, just, he's been such a great mentor to me. He, he's less, less of a public eye. He doesn't want to uh, do that, but he's still very vibrant and, and knowledgeable. Yeah, I remember when he was director of the um, the the NIDA um, extramural um, intramurals research center, and I was talking to him, and he says, um, I don't know how it came up, but he says, um, you know why I do so well? I always hire people who are smarter than I. And I said, I don't believe that at all. <laughs> He's amazing. Yeah. So I want to say thank you to Dr. Thomas Paul Veroni. I wish you the best in your medical education and hope you uh, have a chance to do a trigger point injection um, in the future. It was fun to work together. And Eric, uh, Dr. Wish, thank you so much for uh, your interesting history and education. I, I'm really very thankful and I feel privileged to have been uh, part of that emergency department drug surveillance study. Um, really an honor to be part of that. And uh, you need to get more funding for your work. Uh, we need to stay on top of the drug trends. No data, no solutions. So that's important. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a, a pre- pleasure and a privilege to work with you. And I'm, I've learned a lot from our discussion. I didn't know you knew so much about the history and the Vietnam veterans study, but also the, the way you have gone and used the, um, the results from the EDS project is just phenomenal. I'm so happy. And I want to urge your your viewers to go to caesar.umd.edu and then you can go to the EDS tab there and you can get all the results that we have on the EDS project. That's great. And I will post that information on the show notes. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org to view their medical library translated for public understanding, 
Listen to their speaker series and follow the science. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths. Thank you.